I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode 11, The Nature of Beauty and the Transcendentals. Before we go over to Charlie and I in discussion, I just want to mention that there is an error within this, and so before the Thomists uh, start to jump up and down in anger, uh, I referred to the important principle that uh, if we're going to understand the nature of beauty, we first of all have to look at objects around us and recognise them as entities in themselves. So if, we, if I look at a chair, um, I see that as, as an entity, a thing that is not simply just the uh, a collection of atoms that we happen to name a chair. It really is an object that has a reality uh, that is important. Um, and then a person, of course, a human person is not a simply a, uh, a collection of chemicals. Uh, there is uh, a body there that creates an entity which um, has a real meaning and, and really exists. And I referred to these as substances and the mistake I made was, was that, in fact, um, they're, they're, they're different. A, a substance um, is, one, is one of those entities which contains the unifying principle within it. So the person has a soul. Uh, whereas for the chair, the unifying principle is the idea in the mind of the, art, of the artist. And so it's called mm. an artifact. And I just mentioned that in passing, uh, but it, it does, uh, I think... It is a good thing, I think, to get things right. So um, that's something that you'll notice as you go through this. Other than that, the, the basic principles, um, I hope you enjoy, uh, are correct, and I stand by them, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, we're back here in the courtyard of the St. Jerome's Convent with David Clayton, and today we're discussing a more philosophically deep subject, I guess. That was the, the caveat that you gave me before we started. Uh, and so hopefully it won't go too far over my head. Um, the, the question, as usual, is, is relating to beauty and worship, culture and faith, uh, but with a particular focus on this idea of beauty and, and how uh, you argue that it is an objective quality. Um, that makes me think a little bit back to my economics uh, studies where we learned the subjective theory of value oh yeah that all you know prices and the economy is dictated by individuals who have their own personal preferences and tastes and these uh, form the the basis for prices not some objective fact about the the objects themselves so what do, what do you mean uh, by this and why is it that the idea of uh, beauty being subjective is so compelling. To, well, yes. Yeah, so th when I say that something is an objective quality, uh, I'm talking about beauty, but also the other w w transcendental properties of being, and, and I'll explain the, what the, I mean by that later as well, but beauty, goodness, truth, and even the one. Um, when I say that it's an objective quality, what I'm saying is that it's, it's a property of the thing that we're thinking about or looking at or regarding. So if I want to decide whether, just in a simple example, if a painting is beautiful, um, it's, 
either is or it isn't or it is so much it's a property of the painting um, now why do we think that it might be subjective well the answer is because you and I might look at a painting and decide we have a different opinion on that and um, you may say I like it and I may say I don't like it now those are true statements as well we, we can't deny that I'm sure I'm sure you're not revealing or hiding your preferences uh, you genuinely like it I genuinely don't so that has to be taken into account and um, but the, the point about this is that in some cases I like it is not the same as it is good um, that maybe our perception of things um, can differ um, and there can be an error we have to think about the possibility that just because you think it's beautiful you might be wrong or just because I think it isn't I might be wrong and then, that we, of course, the question that arises, well, if there's a difference of opinion, who decides? How do we decide? And that's a difficult question to answer. And so um, a lot of people think, well, the easiest thing is just to say, I have my truth, you have your truth, um, and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Now, why is this important? Um, I think that the discussion of this um, is, impo is, is important uh, because then we can gain an understanding of the nature of beauty, truth, and goodness, the, these things that, that actually matter so much um, in regard to our happiness. If, if we have a certain view of these things, um, for example, how can I know what is true if I don't even know what truth is? How can I know what is good, objectively good, for me, if I don't know what, what the word good means, if I don't have an even understand, basic understanding of it. So it's worth trying to pin these things down because ultimately these relate to our happiness. The, the, all that we do, uh, every decision we make, if you follow the chain of logic right the way down to its roots is about what we think is going to make us happy. Um, and if we get this wrong, we can end up miserable. And I would suggest that so many people today um, are miserable uh, because they get this wrong. Um, now, they're not thinking about this philosophically. They're just adopting a certain worldview, very often intuitively or unthinkingly. Um, I don't, and I don't mean that negatively. Many people aren't forced really to think about this deeply. Most of us, when we make decisions, we're not rationally thinking them through at a deep level. We're just doing what we think is right and good. Otherwise, if we didn't, we couldn't operate in the world. We have to think at that level. Um, but I think that it's worth getting people to think about how to, what are the assumptions that they have. Now, the second part of this is, do I think that if somebody has the wrong point of view, as I would see it, um, that this discussion is going to convince them to do a u-turn and change their point of view um, well it might but in all honesty i think it's unlikely um, i think this is going to be of interest to people who already hold this view and it will deepen their understanding of why and it will also connect with the faith these things have a, a deep connection to faith in god actually um, and faith always seeks understanding and so that is good for people. Um, but perhaps only indirectly will it contribute to our ability to persuade others. If somebody's got our interest, 
then they might be open to a rational discussion. But the big question is, how do you get their interest? And that comes down to a lot of the things we've said in the past about the new evangelization. But in this area particularly, I do have some ideas about that. Um, and it, I'm hoping we might get to these at the end. How do we actually hope to persuade people so that they can have the gift of joy, if you like, that the faith gives us? Um, and if we don't get to that this week, then that'll be the topic for next week. Okay. So you refer, you're in the title of this episode, to uh, transcendentals. What is a transcendental? Okay, so the word transcendent means uh, beyond, uh, and tr a transcendental, in the, in the way that we're using it, is a, is a property of being. Um, in other words, it, it is uh, properties that go beyond any one particular group, type, or category of being. So we're looking at, at properties that all things that exist have. Um, and so therefore, um, if we believe that God exists, they unite us to God as well. Um, and um, one little clarification, um, when we talk about going beyond any category, in this sense we do mean um, and including all others as well. So it, it goes beyond physical existence or material existence, but it does include that sort of existence as well. Um, it doesn't simply mean those things that are uh, metaphysical, beyond mm -hmm. the physical. Uh, it includes the physical, all things that exist. Okay. Uh, why does this matter in your view? Um, well, as I said, it, that if we can get down to the core nature of existence and reality, um, then we have a basis upon which we can understand the world around us, and ultimately it will lead, um, once we can do that, um, it will give us a worldview, one hopes, that will is consistent with faith in God, um, and as a believer I think that that is true. And so, therefore, potentially every aspect of our lives can be in harmony with every other aspect, mm. um, and also with our, um, the practice of our faith. Um, so, where do we start? If we just move down to there, it is uh, through common experience um, and common sense. We, we, we look at the world around us and, and generally we make certain assumptions about what we're seeing. And so the starting assumptions for us um, are not the authority of a book. I'm not going to say that it begins with a philosopher, although it's good to look at um, good philosophers, um, but the, the, they begin with certain assumptions. And so what's the, the place that we're starting here is that existence is a reality. So I'm sitting here looking at you, Charlie, and I believe that you exist. I believe that I exist. I believe that when I look at the world around me, there is something that exists. Maybe my perception of it could be um, imperfect or incomplete, um, or maybe even distorted in some ways, because I'm relying on my senses and I'm relying on my thought processes and the workings of my brain, if you like, to process that information accurately and well. But nevertheless, there is an underlying assumption that I exist, 
the world exists. Um, and so I am and it is and you are mm-hmm. are true statements. It's not simply a figment of my imagination. It's not a, um, a just a, an image, an illusion uh, that I have. So there's no radical skepticism about everything. We, we start there. Yeah. Um, and one way of characterizing this was that we're modern philosophy, of course, uh, might have a different view. And famously, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, has the opposite starting point. Um, he says, I don't trust any of the information that I get. I don't know what I'm looking at. Um, I'm not sure it exists. The only thing that I can say is um, that uh, I think and therefore I have an existence. Um, The counter to that would be, well, that presupposes an I to think it Mm. before you even make the statement. And so therefore he's assumed that uh, before you start, I exist um, is an assumption. Um, So that's the, the, uh, the, the, the way that some people start and... I don't. I start with a different set of premises. And the the opposite was uh, what would be consistent with somebody like St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, the traditional view, which is, I am, therefore I think. Hmm. Um, And so existence comes before the thought. And this this just happens deep inside us. And I would say that most people operate on that basis, actually. Even if they, if you put them in a philosophy class and they argue the exact opposite and say that, and with great conviction, yeah, uh, you have to spend a lot of money and be educated for a very long time in an alternative perspective before you start seeing the world in the other way. <laughs> That's right. It takes a lot of work. It's like it's like taking up smoking. Exactly. <laughs> While you were talking, I was thinking of a line that I heard last night. It was, we don't see the world as it is, uh, we don't, or we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. Uh, so there, there is this sense in which each of us brings our own you know, experience. We, we have just different sense organs that we use to yes. perceive the world, and so we're all going to see things slightly differently. How do you kind of settle disputes about ultimate reality then if, if we're all equipped with, with different basic stuff of what we are well actually starting from that those uh, axioms those basic assumptions I am it is you are you can construct a whole uh, array if you like of truths Um, and so uh, that's how I would proceed from this point now how do we settle disputes some of them you can just say well we need a, you know, there's no arbiter whom we trust. We we'll just have to agree to disagree. Um, but we can accept that one of us is wrong, one of us is right, or perhaps we're both wrong. Um, but if we have contradictory ideas, um, and it's interesting, we're, we're in uh, turbulent times at the moment politically. Mm. I hope people's hearts aren't sinking as I bring this in. So as we're recording this, it's the week after the. Um, announcement of the Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court. Um, some people are delighted, some are troubled, um, but actually w- one of the things that uh, st- always strikes me in these, this situation is that um, it's a lot easier to tolerate differing points of view 
maybe paradoxically, if you believe in objective truth. So very often those who believe in objective truth, for example, or in the case of beauty, people say, well, you're arguing that this painting is beautiful and it, only your opinion is right. And um, I would say, well, I do believe that, but also I acknowledge this uh, that in some areas we we struggle to know what that is and so I might be wrong but nevertheless that doesn't undermine the idea that uh, there is a truth mm. um, and I think that once you accept that it'll if you believe the possibility that I might be wrong because of my perception not because of that there isn't a, a, a truth outside of me then I can acknowledge that you might be but also that you might might be wrong but you might be right and that allows me then to be more tolerant, I think, of differing opinions. Hmm. I think it's harder, paradoxically, to accept the opinions of others when you, the only thing you're certain of is that I exist and I think. And then everything else is, is, a, um, is a perturbation on my perfect worldview. <laughs> it's contrary to what I think. Um, I, I'm not sure how to deal with this. Um, so... Uh, now, would presenting this to somebody make somebody more tolerant? I don't know. I think a lot of this is disposition as well. But um, that's how we can approach a discussion of this type. Okay. Now, what can we say are the properties of these things that exist? What, what do they possess? Okay. So the traditional approach, the, the, they can vary. Um, but generally there is a, a consensus, consensus, consensus uh, amongst those who um, follow this line of logic through, who begin at the same point, shall we say, at least accept the premises, um, that there are maybe four or five. Um, so there's the one, the true, and the good, which generally agreed upon. Um, some people think that beauty is... Uh, a transcendental property of being um, and from what I understand St Thomas Aquinas didn't actually it, it's just he didn't he believed that beauty is a uh, an objective quality and all things are beautiful but he thought I think that it could be derived from other things so he proposed um, two others uh, but not beauty res which is Latin for a thing and aliquid which is Latin for another thing or something else. Um, and that, that's very interesting. We'll come to that in a second and how that relates to the idea. It, in a sense, opens up the door to the objectivity of beauty. Um, but let's just run through what those mean, uh, because it's not always obvious. So the one. Um, this is, uh, everything is one. Well, you might say, well, what are there are two of them? <laughs> is the obvious question I had. Well, every, every, every object that we look at, um, every noun, if you like, if we're using language, a ball, a cup, is an entity. And it's, therefore, it is, if we can think of it as something, um, it is complete in itself in some way. Um, it might also be a part of something else, but, it, but if we can think of it as a thing, uh, um, philo philosophically you'd say a substance, um, it is one. So even if we have a whole series of rubber balls coming off a production line, 
each ball is one. It is an entity. We could say this ball and that ball, and there are three balls and there are three ones. So does this have to get into some kind of physics or material science in order to determine the exact boundaries? Because it seems like you could kind of make a wishy-washy argument that, you know, really there's there's no separation or we, we draw the boundary lines arbitrarily. Maybe if you zoomed in far enough with a microscope, you could see like a, a where it's kind of a cloud that diffuses from one thing to another. The, or the and fundamental atomic particle or subatomic particle is, is the only one. Well, that's an interesting point. It's interesting you also that you referred to it as wishy-washy. Um, I agree with you, but uh, for many people, uh, there is no such thing as a substance, as an entity. Right. That it is all just, you know, matter. And it's simply a human construct, a construct mm. that we impose upon things um, and, and give them names. And so um, if that is true, then... There's no such thing as I'm, I'm in the courtyard here and I'm looking at three watering cans that are different colours and different shapes. But I believe each one is a watering can and I call it a watering can because it bears such certain essential properties of watering mm, cans. Okay, but here's an interesting question. Okay, and I'm going to make a plug for another podcast, which is Everything <laughs> is Alive. I think it's an NPR show or something like that. But it's a kind of a joke or a parody of these NPR shows like This American Life where uh, just as has a similar format, but the, the twist is the interview subjects are objects, uh, actors pretending to be a can of soda. So there's Lewis, the can of, of off-brand cola, and you hear his whole life story, and then at the end of the episode, uh, the host or the interviewer uh, agrees to drink his contents because it seems like you know he's been looking forward to this moment his whole life, but no one's ever actually picked him up and... and uh, consumed him, and so the question is, you know, what is he? Is he the exterior can? Is he the contents within the can? What's going to happen when all of the cola goes away and it's just an empty can? And I'll, I, I won't give away the ending, but I think that it could actually <laughs> bear on this discussion in deeper and more profound ways than we would imagine. Where the, you know the can of soda, what is it but all of its components? Well. There are, I think there are two approaches to this. One is to get into the language and you start breaking down the, the way we refer to things linguistically, which I'm never very happy with, I must say. Um, we need clear definitions of things, but mm. uh, ultimately, I would say that you rely on common sense. So what do most people think of when you talk of a can of soda? Um, is the can of soda the, the can before you've put, opened it, or is it, is it still a can of soda when you've drunk it? Mm -hmm. Most people would say no. So therefore, it, it then becomes something else, a different substance, a different noun. It becomes an empty can of soda. Or yeah, now a, it's in a, your a stomach. Can. And, yeah. Yes, and, uh, but it, all, it, it does begin with common sense and uh, just... Now, some would say, therefore, that supports the idea that it's just a construct. I would say no, there is a reality to these things that... Um, that we, we are talking about properties of being and that can of soda does exist mm -hmm. as a can of soda. It has a, it has a purpose. Um, it, there's a reason in the mind of the person who created it that it exists in that way. Um, and so, uh, therefore, there's an idea that connects all of those things uh, of what it is together 
um, in a single substance, which is the can, mm. or the watering can. Yeah. Um, so now that is controversial. So, but nevertheless, today especially, uh, people uh, uh, for a long time, this, the the, orig- the seeds of this uh, disparity or this divergence in ideas go right the way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, some people would say someone called William of Ockham who developed an idea called nominalism, which is really just what you describe, it's just okay. a human construct. Um, but I would say no, I believe in substance. Now, in Catholics, really, for Catholics, it's very difficult to say you don't believe in substance because we believe in transubstantiation. So that is the substance is the right. is the is Christ, is, is an entity. <laughs> um, and he's really present, is what we believe. And... How does it sort of change form when someone receives the Eucharist? I mean, it it, it becomes, it's sort of assimilated then into the being of the person receiving communion? Or what does someone like Aquinas yeah, say so, about that? Yes, so substances can change. They can decay, they can move, there can be sub- substantial change. So uh, the what is prior, what was previously bread becomes Christ, mm-hmm. and what was previously Christ is... I think becomes part of us. I'm not a, a, a an expert on the theology of transubstantiation or the philosophy of it, uh, but, but yes, there can be substantial change. Okay, and so the same matter can become something else or yeah. part of something else. I couldn't help but think in this uh, listening to this episode of Everything Is Alive when the when the can gets gets drunk, <laughs> there is sort of a parallel to the. Uh, the pouring out or the kenosis of of Christ on the cross. It's kind of a one of those things where I'm sure that the the creators of it weren't thinking of that parallel, but there is sort of, you know, things some things have the the potential to offer themselves uh, as, you know, a uh, a gift. Even a can of soda has its its purpose, which is to it's kind of Yes. Uh, the, the one difference being, of course, that the the living water never runs dry. We believe, right? Anyway. Yeah. All right. That's one. Okay. That's a long one, but it's one. Um, what is true? Uh, so, what is true? Um, truth is the knowability of being. So, um, if something is true, uh, then it, we are perceiving something about the object uh, Mm. that we're looking at. Um, And so this relates to knowledge and immediately implies that there is a knower (laughs) in relation with it, or potentially could be, that there is the capacity for an intellect uh, or the potential for an intellect to know something about that object. So in other words, all things can be known by the intellect. Um, if, they're pro- if it's a property of all being, potentially we can know all things. Um, and uh, immediately suggests some sort of relationship. Uh, mm. it, there's, there's got to be a way that the intellect can know that. It's, it's, it has the truth of it. Uh, it is knowable, but nevertheless, nevertheless the intellect is, is capable of knowing. There's this implication of a relationship with an intellect. Um, now, the good is the desirability of being. Um, it is uh, 
desirable and it is good for us, even if it is just good for us to know it, shall we say. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it has a goodness by virtue of its existence. It is good to exist. Um, some things you may argue are not much good. There's not, not, there's not much good beyond that. But uh, yeah. the, the very least that anything has is that it exists, and most have a lot more. Um, and th this does bring up the idea, well, what does it mean that nothing is bad? Um, and uh, the, the answer to this is that, uh, that what is bad is what you call a privation of what is good. It's not that something, uh, everything that exists, that Joseph Pieper wrote a book, everything that exists is true. And he says that, um, it has information regarding what it is, if we can call it that, and it's knowable. Uh, and something that isn't true is about the is the flawed communication of that, or the mm. flawed grasp. That's what uh, a lie or untruth is. Um, now, if everything that exists is good, uh, it is good for something. Um, when we say it's bad, it may not be good for what we would like it for. It's it's uh, we may have a a wrong idea of what it's capable of or what it ought to do um, and something can be diminished in some way uh, or it can be less good than it ought to be so a watering can with holes in it is not much good as a watering can um, nevertheless it is matter it is good in itself it is good that things exist mm -hmm. um, but immediately it is a bad watering can because it, it has a hole in it um, and it can't hold the water. Well, watering cans have holes in them. Right. But a hole Almost in the wrong. Yeah. <laughs> a hole in the wrong place. That's, That's an important like distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, then uh, we'll get on to beauty. Uh, some people would say this is a, this is a transcendental, and in discussions today, usually it is counted as a transcendental. Mm. Um, and so beauty is, I've defined as the radiance of being. In other words, uh, when I uh, perceive something, somehow that information about it, then it, its existence, some aspects of its existence, the truth of it, the goodness of it, is communicated to me. So it must in some way be radiating it. It's, it's, mm. it's, it's apparent at a distance, if I, if I can put it like that. Um, and so beauty is the radiance of being. Um, and uh, when we realize, perceive that something is good and true, and it is a thing, an entity in itself, um, we take pleasure in that. We take delight in that. Um, and then uh, we call it beautiful. Okay. Now, the, the, the two other transcendentals that come up in St. Thomas Aquinas, res and aliquid, um, rather like the... I talked about how the true be, being the knowability of being, that, that suggests uh, that there is one who is capable of knowing it. The good is the uh, desirability of being. It suggests there is one other than the object itself, who desires it, who is capable of desiring it. Um, and uh, so, therefore, uh, what St. Thomas is saying is that all things are by nature relational. Uh, 
that there is this interconnectivity of all things to all other things. Uh, they affect each other. And when one of those things um, is a, a thinking being, a person, for example, mm -hmm. with an intellect and will, who can desire something through the will and can know it through the intellect, then that relationship is, if you like, uh, allows for the perception of good, true, and beauty. If you have two watering cans next to each other, they are in relation to, but they d they're not perceiving the beauty and the goodness of each other. It takes me sitting here, a third person, <laughs> third object, to perceive both of them in relation to each other. Okay. Um, now, what, so what St. Thomas is saying is that everything is an entity. Um, and then everything is also another thing, aliquid, um, is an entity in relation to something else. So hmm. all things are in relation to all other things. So if we are talking about two things, two substances, uh, we call one the, the thing and therefore the other is the other thing. Hmm. Uh, if we decide to do it the other way around, the thing that was the aliquid, the other thing becomes the thing and therefore immediately the, the alternate becomes the other thing. And it's the same if, I, if you and I are looking at each other. We are in relation with each other immediately. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is an interconnectivity of us, uh, whether or not we acknowledge that. And in my mind, I am the thing, and you are the other thing. In your mind, you are the thing, and I am the other, I am the other thing. So, Because we, we, each of us has a different perspective. We have our own intellects and wills. Um, and so uh, we... View, but simultaneously I am both the thing and the other thing ris, res and aliquid um, and I would suggest that if you have those then actually you don't need to define beauty as a transcendental as, as if you don't wish to St Thomas does talk about beauty but you can say that beauty arises it is the, a property of the being of all things I think that would be consistent with what St Thomas said but um, rest and aliquid allow for that interrelationality of things that is implicit with beauty. So you either go down one route, you have the one, the true, the good, rest and aliquid, or one, the true and the good and the beautiful, the beautiful, which actually implies this interrelationality of all things. Okay. Uh what do you want to talk about next? <laughs> Where do we go from here? All Where right. do we go from here? Uh, so the ultimate standard of uh, the transcendentals, uh, we believe, is God. Um, so he is pure being. So the one who has the most existence has the most beauty, has the, the most goodness, truth, um, and is complete um, in, a, in a way that no thing, other things are. So the watering can has unity as a watering can, but it's not full, it doesn't have full existence because it's not much use as a hose pipe. Um, now, God has, is fully existent, if you like. He, he has all aspects of things contained within him. Um, I'm speaking allegorically there. Um, I'm not saying God is a hose pipe. So... Uh, God is actually pure being. His existence itself is fully realized. There is no potentiality. He's not transforming into something that is greater or less. He's fully realized. 
in his existence. Um, and so, therefore, he's not only is one true, good, and beautiful, um, he is uh, beauty itself. He is the, uh, the standard of beauty, is, is what we uh, believe beauty is in its perfect form. Um, he is truth itself, he is goodness. Um, and some people have argued, Plato, for example, that we have an idea of those pure things, uh, of beauty, truth, and goodness, uh, simply in order to make judgments about what is good and beautiful, we're comparing in our mind with a standard. And so he says we have an innate sense of these ideals, and which then believers in God would go on and say, well, therefore we have an innate sense of God. Even if we don't acknowledge it openly, the fact that we make judgments about beauty and goodness and truth. Um, now, uh, if God is the standard of these things, then therefore our faith and our purity can influence our ability to judge these qualities. Hmm. Um, because we have a, we have a greatest grasp, if you like, of the ultimate standard. And so uh, the famous phrase, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Purity affects our ability to judge beauty. Um, now, it's easy then to fall into a, uh, the idea that uh, I'm the elite uh, arbiter of beauty. Uh, I have very refined tastes, as you know, Charlie, and you know, everything I say is, has great weight behind it. Therefore, I am pure and godly, too. Um, well, we are in a beautiful courtyard <laughs> garden. <laughs> um, but, of course, we, we can't say that. The only one who can judge ultimately our purity is God um, but nevertheless if I wish to be uh, to move towards a better uh, ability to apprehend these things then I would argue that we want to be pure I want to live the sacramental life and, uh, as best I can um, but there are other factors involved in the subjectivity of beauty so that if we can't automatically make a judgment that somebody is purer because we judge them to uh, judge beauty right. That's a very dangerous path to follow. Okay. Uh, now, the next thing is that just, I, I don't want to go too far down this route, but uh, it's this idea. There's a great book, by the way, which I would recommend to people by um, a, a Jesuit priest who's now dead who uh, used to teach at Fordham University called Father Norris Clark um, and uh, he wrote a book called The One and the Many about this and uh, it is uh, he is a brilliant writer um, and so anybody who wants to read more about that that is the book that I would recommend on this um, the One and the Many by Father Norris Clark. What's interesting about him is that he relates all these things to uh, modern developments in philosophy and also modern science. So he is a true philosopher. He's not someone who's just relaying uh, beautifully and uh, clearly uh, the philosophy that already existed prior to him, which he does do nevertheless. He actually shows um, how uh, the modern understanding of the world can actually uh, contribute to a development in philosophy. 
Okay, so a point that he makes in that book, which I found fascinating, is that uh, when we distinguished one thing from another, what we are actually uh, using to distinguish is what we are lacking rather than what we have. Because if God is the, has the fullness of existence and all that exists uh, has these properties of being, what, what we actually have is less existence than God. And so mm. it's actually, it's the difference between us and God is what we lack, not what we have. So it's a very positive view of existence. We are, everything is like God in the way that it exists. And therefore a stone or another person is like me in the way that they're like God. By, hmm. by virtue of their existence. Um, okay. So if we are trying to bring this back to kind of an everyday outlook, uh, what are you actually trying to persuade people? to? How are you trying to persuade them to think differently than they currently do? Well, what I would hope, if we could persuade people of this, is that, for example, um, when we... Uh, look at uh, the nature of faith even so, something very very simple um, the common response is because we don't want to have arguments well that's what's true for you is true for you what's true for me is true for me there is no objective truth um, it's purely a perception and therefore the, the, we don't even need to, to investigate who is right or who is wrong uh, we should be open-minded when we have these discussions. But if we both approach this believing that where there is a difference of opinion, it might be that there's a, an, an objective, uh, there is a, that actually that there is a standard so that we can look to, um, then we can um, have this common, we can share this faith, faith together. Uh, the difficulty with so much engagement today is really that a lot of it just relies on people um, having personal, thinking all things are opinion. Um, and therefore, uh, really, the, it, having that view means there's no curiosity, there's mm -hmm. no drive to find out what the truth is. There's, very, there's less sense of doubt mm. about whether or not they might be right or wrong, because... Um, what I like, I know what I like. What I think, I know what I think. And if that's all that the truth is, then there's no need to go any further. Hmm. Um, and the whole, and if we don't do that, ultimately, the whole basis of society, of justice, all the, the rules that we live by, they just break down. Um, because um, I can just claim that what, what is true for me is true for you. Um, True for me is true for me. What is true for you is true for you, and we just there is no truth. Um, the notions such as the family, such as what is to be a father or a mother, break down. For example, um, all categories of existence break down. They just if we just believe that they're just um, subjective view, that can be fluid, mm. and I can just change my mind tomorrow, and what was true to is true for me tomorrow. Is just as true as the opposite, that what I believe today. And if we, first of all, it becomes very, very difficult for people to cooperate with each other um, if we can't acknowledge that there is some common standard, even if it's difficult to ascertain, that we're striving towards. Um, and the irony of this is that so much of this attitude derives from this fear of. Uh, 
coming across differing opinions, we just allow everybody to be right, um, then the, the thought is that we don't need to argue with each other. But actually, my experience is that the people who are least tolerant and least able to cope, even if they, are, they don't interfere with what I believe, are, are those who have this subjective approach to things. And so mm. th th this matters. This is very, very important. So a belief that everything is just kind of, well, you're, so you're saying that everything exists in relation to everything else. Yes. But that's not the same as to say that everything is relative. No, no, it isn't. Uh, because, uh, the, the, well, uh, when we say everything is relative, uh, it depends what you mean by yeah. relative. I, have a, I had a friend actually who used to uh, teach philosophy uh, he was a PhD student and he used to teach, therefore, as a teaching assistant philosophy at Cambridge. And he said that w when he taught it, he said, it all boiled down to the phrase, depends what you mean by. He mm -hmm. said that everything, every question uh, was, pref the answer was preface. Semantics but, games. Yeah, yeah. Depends what you mean by. He said, that's what philosophy is. Um, so we, we do need some uh, definitions, uh, but... Uh, Everything is relative, if relative means in relation to each other. But um, when there is objective truth, then we don't believe that, uh, that if, if we buy relative, we mean all truth is subjective, then I don't, we're, we're countering that. Um, okay, so I don't know if you have any comments or thoughts about that. What, what well, I might go on, go on. Yeah, yeah on. one other thought, uh, and this is, coming from a, a tweet that, that I saw from an account that promotes the theology of Marshall McLuhan. And it was kind of summarize him as arguing that the effect of, uh, or he, he, was, he was talking about um, how theology or various theologies often become just <clears throat> word games and little more. And really the only theology that matters is ascetical theology or that which we encounter on our knees. Uh, and so that brings us to the question of how does one, assuming that they want to know what is good, beautiful, and true, how do they kind of recalibrate themselves to position themselves in right relation to all these other things in the world? Right. Um, and that's really, yes, as you say, the, the and all the, the other question is the one of putting that question, well, the way of putting that question is, uh, the way we introduced it right at the start, how, why do people adopt a certain point of view? That if, um, if, we, if it all depends on our uh, axiomatic truth, the, the premises we make, um, why do some people adopt some and why do some people adopt others? Mm. Um, what influences that? Um, now, um, unlikely to be, as I said, rational argument, uh, because uh, in the end, uh, it, it, they are assumptions. Uh, mm. They may be consistent with each other. They may provide, as we work the logic through, a much better self-consistent worldview, which I think they do. But people can will accommodate those. Uh, you know, we see cognitive dissonance all the time. So mm. 
uh, and unless really forced to deal with it because it's making them desperately unhappy, most people will not. Uh, they won't swallow their pride and deal with it. So how do we do this? Well, this comes down to the ultimate relation that we had. So we have, um, and this does link to what uh, this summary of Marshall McLuhan that you, you gave us, um, and that is the uh, relationship with God. Um, in the end, uh, there can be no point in worshipping God, in getting on our knees and praying to God, if all I believe is that I exist, or rather, I think, therefore, I am, and everything else is an illusion. How can I even know that there's a God external to me that, um, that I can be in relation with? Um, and so uh, the action of worship, uh, getting on my knees, and th that's, of course, prayer, but the, the whole activity, the bowing, the standing, the kneeling, uh, the words which relate to that, um, the actions that the priest is taking that I observe, all of these are based on a fundamental premise that, that there is a God to worship. Otherwise, there's no point in going um, to the Mass, for example. There's no point in going to the liturgy. Um, and so one of the most profound things that I think for the faithful, um, again, we've heard this in so many of the, of the podcasts that uh, we've produced, is this idea of the liturgy, the worship of God being the, the most the highest human activity. From that, it seems all else flows. Um, and so if I, I'm engaged in worship, uh, then that immediately sets me uh, at some level, I'm acknowledging a relationship to something external to us. And uh, the, the only we find that as people, uh, the only way that I can know that I am is in relation to others. I distinguish myself from immediately from other things that are. I, I, I simultaneously um, recognize my existence, your existence, and other things' existence. Um, and so that relationality, if I can call it that, is intrinsic to me, but therefore there must be something that I am in relation with. And so immediately I acknowledge that existence. And if, therefore... I'm in relationship with God, he reveals more fully to myself that I exist. Um, and John Paul II said, we know ourselves by virtue of relations uh, to other. I, I forget, oh, God, the, here's the phrase that he said, God's love reveals man to himself. Um, so uh, when we have uh, perfection in front of us, it allows us then to know that we exist fully because we have the full standard of existence uh, to measure ourselves by. And so the natural expression of our relationship to God is worship. And it's interesting that, again, that, uh, Father, it was Father Brad Elliott, actually, who he produced a series of videos on the what he called the virtue of religion, uh, the seven or eight of them, uh, they're on my podcast. I'll put a link up. Um, sorry, they're on my, my blog, but I'll put a link up in this podcast. Uh, the, the, the virtue of religion. Now, for St. Thomas, the virtue of religion is the virtue of worshipping God. 
And it's something that um, is natural to us, but we tend to arrive at by reflection. Um, so uh, most people will tend towards some sort of worship. You hear people, uh, everyone saying, you know, we don't worship God, we'll end up worshipping something else. Um, but uh, it is by reflection on these things that we realize that we need to uh, worship God um, as the source of all being and the, the principle of all, of all government of thing that, that uh, really through him all things are. Um, and so he's saying that the highest virtue uh, is the worship of God, in fact, because this reinforces and nourishes and expresses to us expresses to ourselves therefore the uh, the the, the, ver the fundamental things that uh, God exists I am you are it is and from that therefore uh, we actually start are able to establish the basic truths from which all the philosophy is derived and then and also all of the theology um, so that the act of worship is fundamental uh, and so very often in education uh, people would the, the traditional or the way that's commonly cited now is you start with philosophy you go to theology scripture is fitting in somewhere in the middle of this and then uh, all comes together as part of theology is is worship but I would say that actually right at the beginning you need worship and you need scripture um, and then that sets us right and helps us then to uh, accept more deeply these basic premises that will make philosophy once we learn about it seem right um, and so uh, alongside all of this uh, we, we ought to be worshipping God so, um, go on yeah so the argument if I can try to summarize it is that uh, philosophy and knowledge are enhanced by being in re right relation to the rest of reality and in particular to be in right relation with God through worship. Yes, it, it sets us on the foundation from which we can then uh, derive all else mm -hmm. that we're capable of. Yes, I As opposed say. to just kind of floating in this sea where everything blends into every other thing and maybe the only thing that's distinct from everything else is our psyche or, or our intellect. Yes. I, I understand that in um, modern philosophy departments uh, that the way they approach this, because they wouldn't, allow, they wouldn't just automatically accept these premises and then move from there, uh, you might come across them in the study of uh, medieval philosophy as a sort of history of philosophy class. But I think that what they do is they almost allow people to make any premises they like. They just start wherever they want to. Um, and then uh, they would say that you can't distinguish one system from another. Uh, each set of premises is equally valid. Mm -hmm. uh, but you just judge the uh, validity of the worldview that derives from it, whether as you work your way down through it, mm -hmm. um, are there obvious contradictions and if it is self-contained and fully integrated within itself as far as they can work out they'd say it's valid mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's a dangerous point of view and uh, but that's uh, I, unless you have a uh, it's founded the foundations of a philosophy department are in the faith 
that's what people tend to do in the secular world. And I think it's, that will, as I say, this actually matters. It's not just a, a detached process of study. These things affect the happiness of people and the cohesion of society, uh, of families. It has a profound effect if we, if we get this wrong. Um, I thought your summary was very good, by the way. Um, I, that's, I would agree exactly with what you say. Um, in a certain sense, yeah. there's kind of an experiment in every person's life, and then there are uh, slightly bigger experiments. So there's the n equals one experiment of each each one of us, and then there are communities of you know n equals whatever. If it's a uh, you know here at the convent, we have n equals twelve. Um, in a parish, you might have fifty to five you know five hundred people. Who knows? Um, and we should see. The results of these experiments, and it seems like the, uh, the the true vine discourses have a lot to do with this. Where where the successful experiments are those that bear fruit, and so someone who's rooted in the truth will hopefully produce better fruit just by having a better understanding of how they fit into the world around them. Yes, and of course. We have to acknowledge that um, someone can have the perfect worldview philosophically, mm. but still be selfish or sinful. Yeah, <laughs> and and this this creeps into all forms of society, and so um, the, the experiment is a long experiment. It's it's um, we have to look at uh, all of time <laughs> and all of existence in a way mm. to, to be sure. But you've got to begin somewhere, so you you do the best you can, and that's and of course, looking to the wisdom of the church, which is really, it's, it's locked into well, literally all time eternity, um, is probably the best place to start with this. But mm -hmm. things can still break down, as we know, within the church as an institution, uh, problems occur. Uh, but. Uh, one thing I would say is that your chances of things succeeding are greatly diminished if you don't start in the right place, mm -hmm. at least. Um, now, the, the, there is an additional question. is If, if the right worldview, if you like, is, is impressed upon our souls through worship, what about those who never worship or those that aren't inclined to do so at the moment? How can you convince them? Um, and... I think the answer is one, do everything you can to get people to worship, even if they're not believers. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't mean force them, but invite them, uh, encourage them to try it. Uh, there's, uh, these things can have an effect uh, through God's grace. Um, so that's why it's always worth inviting, if you think somebody might go, inviting somebody to Mass and see whether they'll do it. We have... Um, social evenings here with Vespers, as you know, at the, the convent of Potluck and Vespers and a talk or something like that. That was the, the structure of the evening with, uh, with a talk by Father Brad Elliott that we had the other day, which will be a future podcast. Um, but the more that people are engaged in this, uh, the more that something in the, it will strike a chord within them. Um, how do you get people to be engaged? Well, it comes down to that discussion on evangelization that we've had before. Is mm. that it, this is about happiness, um, the desire for God, the, the, the desire to what is, do what is true, is, is all fueled by 
ultimately our desire to be happy. God made us to be happy with him. Um, and so we are seeking our own good when we seek God. And the two are, compa- are really overlapping. Um, and the Christian life uh, is a life of joy. It would be a cruel thing indeed, and I think probably impossible, that, that made the right thing to do what made us unhappy. We were somehow created as... Uh, anti-beings or something i don't know this sort of it 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 would be an unbearable sort of existence that we're driven uh to do things what is right is not what makes us happy that would be awful yeah um but there there is no such conflict Uh, some people fear there is but there is no such conflict i think there might be a competing worldview that holds not necessarily that we're made to be unhappy but that uh because the universe is just kind of a random uh, experiment or, or something to that effect that our odds of being happy are maximized by seeking our self-interest and hoping that we get lucky or something to that effect. <laughs> well, I, I think so. I, I, I look at, I often wonder with people who have no faith uh, how anyone can carry on actually I couldn't. I, I had no faith for the first part of my life, really. I mean, the, the moment I was able to decide, I rejected it. Mm. Um, and I was in despair by my late mid-20s. Um, wonder, I was wondering how I could go on. There, there didn't seem to be any point of anything. It, it, I'd got to the point where even if things went my way, um, I couldn't see how that was going to make me happy. I just wasn't and was able to derive happiness from my will if you like um so there was huge frustration of course that things didn't go my way but even when they did i realized it didn't you know the 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 delight lasted a few moments and immediately i was dissatisfied yeah um and so i have to say i'm puzzled in some way and full of admiration for those who can continue without that I, i simply don't know how they do it um but I would love them. I, I honestly believe that anyone will be happier. They will be the happiest they can be in this life if they can have the faith. And so mm. this is what's driving the desire to communicate all of this, actually. Any closing comments? Well, no, I, in a way, that's, those are my closing comments. This all is right. about the that happy life, and um, I, I wish that, that you find it. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. Music